the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back. Friday, December 3rd, 2021. I was watching a documentary on the author Kurt Vonnegut Jr. last night. You, might ask, you may ask, why Kurt Vonnegut, of all people? Well, two reasons. The first, because there just aren't a lot of options. You've heard me on this before, but can you think of anything Hollywood has done that's, done that's been great? Never mind, amazing lately. I like to point out what Hollywood used to be able to do in a given year, a single year. In 1962, but pick any. I like that year because they have some of my favorite movies. But just consider they did Hollywood in one year, did all of this and more. A sampling. Lawrence of Arabia, The Longest Day, Mutiny on the Bounty, To Kill a Mockingbird. Bill, remind me to circle back to the To Kill a Mockingbird issue. Divorce Italian Style, The Days of Wine and Roses, The Music Man, The Miracle Worker, The Manchurian Candidate, and more. That's what Hollywood used to do. In a single year. We don't get that anymore. In fact, the most news out of Hollywood we get these days is not about great movies, but tragedies. Alec Baldwin and Screaming Fits, Tom Cruise, and now a fight between George Clooney and Alec Baldwin. In any event, the second reason I watched the Kurt Vonnegut documentary is that in high school, as I'm guessing is true of many of you, too, Kurt Vonnegut was one of my favorite authors. And he's a tremendously interesting man, a former POW a fighter in the Battle of the Bulge, an observer of Dresden's bombing. And that was just all up until 1945. Of course, too, I often read on this show one of the most important essays against authoritarianism and tyranny ever written, Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut, about which more shortly. He wrote a lot of things high school students and college students would gel to, and he was funny, too. He wrote things like, quote, of course it is exhausting having to reason all the time in a universe which isn't reasonable. Or we are healthy only to the extent that our ideas are humane. Or I wish that people who are conventionally supposed to love each other would say to each other when they fight, please, a little less love and a little more common decency, close quote. Those are the kind of sentiments high school and college students love or loved Decency and humanity are, of course, lessons in short supply these days. I'm not sure, however, if they are in short demand or not. That's my question. It was a good-ish documentary, but the one thing, the very thing it did not address was that famous 1961 essay on tyranny and authoritarianism, the essay titled Harrison Bergeron. And the shame of that is the loss of that, because it's an essay that could not be more timely in fact, I would say it's the most timely thing Kurt Vonnegut Jr. ever wrote. By his own admission, his books were not set for any particular time. Can I share it with you? It may take us into the next segment. It's a heck of an important story. The year was 2081, and every, everybody was finally equal. Before I go further, I, I just got to stop. That's 30 years. That's a generation beyond which, as you may recall George Orwell said, remember he said 2050, probably sooner, but 2050, probably sooner. 
the books we grew up with from Milton to Shakespeare would be gone and taught to mean things they were never intended to mean. He was, uh, what, Orwell was off by, you know, a good 30 years there, although he said it could happen sooner. Kurt Vonnegut is adding, what, 30 or 40 years. The year was 2081, and everybody was finally equal. They weren't only equal before God and the law. They were equal every which way. Nobody was smarter than anybody else. Nobody was better looking than anybody else. Nobody was stronger or quicker than anybody else. All this equality was due to the 211th, 212th, and 213th Amendments to the Constitution and to the unceasing vigilance of agents of the United States Handicapper General, H.G. for short. Some things about living still weren't quite right, though. April, for instance, still drove people crazy by not being springtime, and it was in that clammy month that the Handicapper General people took George and Hazel Bergeron's 14-year-old son, Harrison, away. It was tragic, all right, but George and Hazel couldn't think about it very hard. Hazel had a perfectly average intelligence, which means she couldn't think about anything except in short bursts. And George, while his intelligence was way above normal, had a little mental handicap radio in his ear. He was required by law to wear it at all times. It was tuned to a government transmitter. Every 20 seconds or so, the transmitter would send out some sharp noise to keep people like George from taking unfair advantage of their brains. George and Hazel were watching television. There were tears on Hazel's cheeks, but she'd forgotten for the moment what they were about. On the television screen were ballerinas. A buzzer sounded in George's head. His thoughts fled in panic like bandits from a burglar alarm. That was a real pretty dance, that dance they just did, said Hazel. What? said George. That dance, it was nice, said Hazel. Yes, said George. He tried to think a little bit about the ballerinas. They weren't really very good, no better than anybody else would have been anyway. They were burdened, after all, with sash weights and bags of birdshot, and their faces were masked so that no one, seeing a free and graceful gesture or a pretty face, would feel like something the cat dragged in. George was toying with the vague notion that maybe dancers shouldn't be handicapped, but he didn't get very far with it before another noise in his ear radio scattered his thoughts. George winced. So did two out of the eight ballerinas. George began to think glimmeringly about his abnormal son, who was now in jail, about Harrison. But a 21-gun salute in his head stopped that. Boy, said Hazel, Hazel, that was a doozy, wasn't it? It was such a doozy that George was white and trembling, and tears stood on the rims of his red eyes. Two of the eight ballerinas had collapsed to the studio floor and were holding their temples. All of a sudden, you look so tired, said Hazel. Why don't you stretch out on the sofa so you can rest your handicapped bag on the pillows, honey bunch? She was referring to the 47 pounds of bird shot in a canvas bag, which was padlocked around George's neck. Go on and rest for a little while, she said. I don't care if you're not equal to me for a while. George weighed the bag with his hands. I don't mind it, he said. I don't notice it anymore. It's just a part of me. 
You've been so tired lately, kind of wore out, said Hazel. If there was just some way we could make a little hole in the bottom of the bag and just take out a few of them lead balls, just a few. Two years in prison and $2,000 fine for every ball I take out, said George. The television program was suddenly interrupted for a news bulletin. It wasn't clear at first as to what the bulletin was about, since the announcer, like all announcers, had a serious speech impediment. For about half a minute, and in a state of high excitement, the announcer tried to say, ladies and gentlemen, but he finally gave up and handed the bulletin to a ballerina to read. That's all right, Hazel said of the announcer. He tried, at least. That's the big thing. He tried to do the best he could with what God gave him. He should get a nice raise for trying so hard. Ladies and gentlemen, said the ballerina, reading the bulletin. She must have been extraordinarily beautiful, because the mask she wore was hideous. And it was easy to see that she was the strongest and most graceful of all the dancers, for her handicapped bags were as big as those worn by 200-pound men. And she had to apologize at once for her voice, which was a very unfair voice for a woman to use. Her voice was a warm, luminous, timeless melody. Excuse me, she said, and she began again, making her voice absolutely uncompetitive. Harrison Bergeron, age 14, she said in a crackle squawk, has just escaped from jail where he was held on suspicion of plotting to overthrow the government. He is a genius and an athlete, is under handicapped, and should be regarded as extremely dangerous. A police photograph of Harrison Bergeron was flashed on the screen, upside down, then sideways, upside down again, then right side up. The picture showed the full length of Harrison against a background calibrated in feet and inches. He was exactly seven feet tall. Nobody had ever worn heavier handicaps. He had outgrown hindrances faster than the HG men could think them up. Instead of a little ear radio for a mental handicap, he wore a tremendous pair of earphones and spectacles with thick, wavy lenses. The spectacles were intended to make him not only half-blind, but to give him headaches besides. Scrap metal was hung all over him. Ordinarily, there was a certain symmetry, a military neatness to the handicap issue, handicaps issued to strong people. But Harrison looked like a walking junkyard. In the race of life, Harrison carried 300 pounds. And to offset his good looks, the H.G. men required that he wear, at all times, a red rubber ball for a nose. Keep his eyebrows shaved off and cover even white teeth with black caps at Snaggletooth Random. If you see this boy, said the ballerina, do not, I repeat, do not try to reason with him. Pause it right there. I'll give you the rest of Kurt Vonnegut, Harrison Bergeron, and equality when we come right back. Welcome back to the State Seth Leapson Show. I am I'm telling the story of Harrison Bergeron as Kurt Vonnegut wrote it for reasons I explained above. Basically, we're at the place in the story of a dystopia Kurt Vonnegut describes where the handsome and pretty people have to wear masks and the strong people have to wear weights. It's an effort to make everyone exactly equal. Uh, the Harris, the uh, Bergerons lost their son Harrison to imprisonment, and he has escaped from prison. 
Here's where the story resumes. There was the shriek of a door being torn from its hinges. Screams and barking cries of consternation came from the television set. The photograph of Harrison Bergeron on the screen jumped again and again, as though dancing to the tune of an earthquake. My God, said George, that must be Harrison, their son. The realization was blasted from his mind instantly by the sound of an automobile collision in his head. Remember, they had put, they implanted uh, radio transmitters in people's brains to scatter their thoughts. When George could open his eyes again, the photograph of Harrison was gone. A living, breathing Harrison filled the screen. Clanking, clownish, and huge, Harrison stood in the center of the studio. The knob of the uprooted studio floor was still in his hand. Ballerinas, technicians, musicians, and announcers cowered on their knees before him, expecting to die. I am the emperor, cried Harrison. Do you hear? I am the emperor. Everybody must do what I say at once. He stamped his foot, and the studio shook. Even as I stand here, he bellowed, crippled, hobbled, sickened, I am a greater ruler than any man who ever lived. Now watch me become what I can become. Harrison tore the straps of his handicap harness like wet tissue paper, tore straps guaranteed to support 5,000 pounds. You can think of Hulk Hogan taking his T-shirt off. Harrison's scrap iron handicaps crashed to the floor. Harrison thrust his thumbs under the bar of the padlock that secured his head harness. The bar snapped like celery. Harrison smashed his headphones and spectacles against the wall. He flung away his rubber ball nose, revealed a man would have awed Thor, the god of thunder. I shall now select my empress, he said, looking down on the cowering people. Let the first woman who dares rise to her feet claim her mate and her throne. A moment passed, and then a ballerina arose, swaying like a willow. Harrison plucked the mental handicap from her ear, snapped off her physical handicaps with marvelous delicacy, last of all removed her mask. She was blindingly beautiful. Now, said Harrison, taking her hand, shall we show the people the meaning of the word dance? Music, he commanded. The musicians scrambled back into their chairs, and Harrison stripped them of their handicaps, too. Play your best, he told them, and I'll make you barons and dukes and earls. The music began. It was normal at first, cheap, silly, false, but Harrison snatched two musicians from their chairs and waved them like batons as he sang the music as he wanted it played. He slammed them back into their chairs. The music began again and was much improved. Harrison and his empress merely listened to the music for a while, listened gravely as though synchronizing their heartbeats with it. They shifted their weights to their toes. Harrison placed his big hands on the girl's tiny waist, letting her sense the weightlessness that would soon be hers. And then in an explosion of joy and grace, into the air they sprang. Not only were the laws of the land abandoned, but the law of gravity and the laws of motion as well. They reeled, whirled, swiveled, flounced, capered, gambooled, and spun. They leapt like deer on the moon. The studio ceiling was 30 feet high, but each leap brought the dancers nearer to it. It became their obvious intention to kiss the ceiling, and they kissed it. And then, neutralizing gravity with love and pure will, they remained suspended in air inches before the ceiling, and they kissed each other for a long time. It was then that Diana Moon Glampers, the handicapper general, came into the studio with a double-barreled 10-gauge shotgun. She fired twice, and the emperor and the empress were dead before they hit the floor. Glampers loaded the gun again. She aimed it at the musicians and told them they had 10 seconds to put their handicaps back on. It was then that the Bergeron's television tube burned out. Hazel turned 
to comment about the blackout to George, but George had gone out into the kitchen for a can of beer. George came back in with the beer, paused while a handicap signal shook him up, and then he sat down again. You've been crying, he said to Hazel. Yes, she said. What about, he said. I forget, she said. Something real sad on television. What was it, he said. It's all kind of mixed up in my mind, said Hazel. Forget sad things, said George. I always do, said Hazel. That's my girl, said George. He winced. There was the sound of a riveting gun in his head. Gee, I could tell that one was a doozy, said Hazel. You can say that again, said George. Gee, said Hazel. I could tell that was a doozy. Now, what's interesting about that story is the Wall Street Journal used to print it in full every April 15th up until about, I don't know, maybe 10 years or so ago. And it's interesting, too, that it's not considered anymore except through the work's efforts and recognition of conservatives as anything representative of Kurt Vonnegut's works. But if you go back and read his books and you look at the efforts of his life, that was his concern. His concern being tyranny, his concern being authoritarianism, and his concern being what states or political entities do to achieve these goals that, if you know humanity, are unachievable. In other words, absolute equality that not only affects legal rights and privileges, doesn't even equal social rights and privileges. That we can do by law, of course, and custom. But takes you to an entirely new plane of equality that has to do with ability to think, ability to see, ability to reason. Did you notice that word in Kurt Vonnegut's essay, reason? And, and, and. Remember what he said again. She forgot. She forgot. How many things have you been learning? How many things have you been told? How many things have you read about that just disappear, get memory hold? Is there, in other words, a huge difference? Yes, is the answer in fact, but perhaps not in ethics. Is there a huge difference between a culture that wants to memory hole negative stories that you're not supposed to see, ban them, and censor them, and one that goes just the step further to get to the point, a step really of impossibility, implanting, implanting discombobulating wire transmitters in heads and brains and covering up people's faces and weighing the strong down with weight. In other words, not necessarily equality, but equality run riot. What do you do in a society of millenarians? What do you do in a society of utopians that has achieved legal and social equality but still demands that there be more done and what more can be done? It's what Larry Elder talks about all the time. When the issues of inequality have a demand that outruns 
and outpaces its supply. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the East Seth Leapson Show, 602-508-0960. We had a caller on hold who wanted to ask me something about Jill Biden and hung up. Is Jill Biden in the news? Did I miss it? <laughs> Maybe she's in the news every day. I, I don't know. Had, oh, the Christmas lights? And did they give her all kinds of kudos and plaudits because she has style and Melania didn't? Is that <laughs> – Yeah. Well, I, I was guessing, I was guessing, though I am, uh, though I'm not sure because I don't think anyone is completely sure, but I, I am guessing that she is acting like maybe two or three other first ladies in the past, mostly um, probably Woodrow Wilson's wife, Edith, who was mentally incapable of dispatching the job of the presidency of the United States. Uh, this obviously isn't as severe, and there's obviously um, some ability for uh, President Biden to speak and respond uh, in a way that um, I suppose gets you just past the laugh test to, to, to his base. To our side, it doesn't. To our side, it doesn't. And And you know, it is what it is as far as what the mechanisms go uh, take from here. I will tell you if Jill Biden, if Jill Biden, Dr. Jill Biden is putatively running the government or at least, you know, responding on behalf of her husband or, you know, speaking uh, to him to give him his cues or whatever, I'll just say, I have to say, I prefer it to the alternative. I prefer it to the 25th Amendment. I prefer it to resignation. I prefer it to any debilitating illness, which I hope, God forbid, does not afflict him. Because what comes next is worse, is a completely sentient, in control of all her mental faculties, vice president, who was the most left-wing senator in the United States Senate, and whose designs on policy and her ability to affect seriousness is not just compromised. It's almost non-existent. It's almost non-existent. It's an interesting thing to think about why she was chosen, isn't it? Do you think it was chosen? Pause on that. This is a really important point, a superiorly important point. One of them is that when you choose a vice president, you do so to either establish political bona fides and capabilities you don't have and convince the American public that the operations of state will be in good shape because you've filled out the gaps in your own abilities. The other is – and you see this less and less, but it used to be fairly traditional – but the other is to help garner the electoral votes of an important state – that can go either way. I think we can dismiss the notion that California was possibly going to vote for Donald Trump. I think we can – I think – so the question is what gaps in expertise 
would Joe Biden have? Well, this is a man who's been in the Senate since 1972. Kamala Harris had been in the Senate for obviously a much shorter period of time. So I don't know that she had any political chops where his didn't exist. The only thing could possibly that could possibly exist would be ideology. Ideology. What was he trying to prove ideologically by choosing her? Was it a sop to the left? Did he need a sop to the left? If he needed a sop to the left, there were other choices of far greater skill and articulation, even in the primary. Bernie Sanders may not have been the right guy because he's, after all, a guy. But there are others. Um, Elizabeth Warren, she's as liberal as the day is long as Kamala Harris, but with a lot less baggage and a lot more, what, agility on her feet and a lot more ability to articulate. Amy Klobuchar, same thing, same thing. So one wonders what it is Kamala Harris brought to this ticket. Um, It's delicate to talk about, but it's kind of when you live by this sword, you have to die by it. And I'm going to approach it when we come back a little bit delicately. Didn't didn't know I was going there. And maybe it answers the question of the person who was on hold. Maybe it doesn't. But anyone who does have a contribution, of course, 602 508-0960. Seth Leibson here, 602-508-0960. I was just running down for the reasons that are on some people's minds about uh, lines of succession and that sort of thing. Should should, uh, Kamala Harris... uh, rise to the presidency and you know the efforts now are to try and think of a way to get her on the supreme court i suppose it would be with a briar resignation or retirement we'll get to that i don't want to confuse the issue i ran down the list of reasons you would pick someone for vice president that anyone has ever picked anyone for vice president and we ruled them all out they didn't make any sense she didn't balance the ticket uh, she wasn't more articulate than those who could establish other bona fides. She certainly doesn't deliver California because um, this table could deliver California for the Democrats. So he must have chosen Kamala Harris for some other reason. And I think perhaps the post-election headlines gives us a hint running through them. Quote, Kamala Harris, a role model for all, for all generations. Kamala Harris serving a role model serving as role model for women. Kamala Harris is role model and reminder of how far we still have to go. Kamala Harris is the ultimate role model for young minority women. Kamala Harris has become a role model for minorities and women. I could go on and on and on. Those are just the five results of something like over two million stories on social and legacy media about how Kamala Harris, going back to November, December, and January, will be or is a role model for women and Minorities. She obviously constituting both. The temptation is to let this pass and make no comment. But for those of us that actually care about equality and achievement, for those of us that actually care about everyone's equality and achievement, it's hard to let it pass. To select or appoint or admit or give a job or promotion to someone, 
based on nothing they had control over or nothing they did other than to be born a certain way is to say perhaps sotto voce because of that attribute, gender, race, you name it, they are good. They are qualified. They are very good. They are very qualified. The immutable characteristic that takes no volition except from God is designated as a positive. Because of your race and gender, you are qualified or most qualified. It is to be seen as a positive. But let's run this syllogism down just a little bit. If you are good or great or more qualified because of your race or gender, someone must be less so because of their race or gender. That's one way to go. That gets you to a phrase at the heart of the old 1970s Bakke versus Regents decision, what was once called reverse racism. The civil rights establishment voided that word because it was inconvenient. So we don't really speak of that anymore, though it remains unsolved. The other way to go is by that by dint of your race or gender, you are ipso facto qualified or more qualified than anyone else. And for a while, the left did try to say this quiet part out loud with the word diversity. But that stopped working. So it was trebled down upon. Now we have diversity, inclusion and equity. But whatever you call it, this is what it boils down to. If you are X, you are qualified for A through Z. And Kamala Harris is deemed X. But nobody who thinks she's qualified to be vice president or for that matter, attorney general or senator also thinks Condoleezza Rice, who is X, is any better than Kamala Harris or even quite as good. Just ask the ladies of The View who is one of the Caucasian women on that show, tried to explain civil rights to Dr. Rice, a Ph.D.-attaining Senate-confirmed federal cabinet member who watched her friends get killed in a racist church bombing in her hometown of Birmingham that she didn't know about civil rights. It dawns on me that there are a lot of exes in society. I've mentioned some of them before. K. Cole James, the uh, immediate past president of the Heritage Foundation, she was a black woman. Winsome Sears is a black woman, too. There are a lot of black women, Candace Owens, but Rice, James, Sears, Owens, and a whole lot more. Star Parker, we're never presented to the public of young exes to be role models, glass ceiling breakers, or anything like that. They were to be mocked, diminished, ignored. Ever watch the movie W about George Bush, played by Barbara Streisand's husband? Dr. Rice is depicted as nothing more than a secretary, not of state, but of a clerical nature. Good for dialing people up on the phone for the president. Not much else. But now an ineffable problem seems to arise. What if, just by chance, the ex of the moment is a failure, is incompetent, does not appreciate the heft of her job or the impact it has on fellow Americans? I raise this as two stories converge. The vice president has hired image consultants, several of her staff, have left and quit, and her poll numbers have gone down to below those of Dick Cheney's. One could say, well, 72% of the American people have no idea what they are talking about and that Kamala Harris has succeeded at everything she's been tasked with, starting with the border. But also, as one aggregated list has it, directing U.S. competitiveness in outer space extending broadband service back on earth, selling the president's multi-trillion dollar jobs bills, unionizing the U.S. workforce, coordinating relations with world leaders, advocating for the rights of women and girls, serving as a watchdog on social security issues, 
and social equity issues and preventing the planet from overheating are all in her portfolio. portfolio. And then, of course, there was her most recent trip to France, which was written up as and designed and sold as a charm offenses, as a, excuse me, as a charm offense. The problem is this. Kamala Harris is, in fact, not succeeding at anything. So it presents the problem we talked about above. If your race and gender are your qualifications, what is to be said about you, your race or your gender when you fail? And does that set back or propel forward the cause of civil and gender rights? Some years, <clears throat> some years ago, Shelby Steele wrote about this, and he spoke about it, <clears throat> the problems of affirmative action and racial preferences and hiring and admissions as, using a, 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 as involving a technique that was a subtle discrimination, a subtle discrimination because it creates the notion of permanent stigma. That is to say you didn't get this job because of your qualifications, but that you did get it because of your race or gender. And that's the problem we're left with. Once the entitlement is achieved and the person received that entitlement because of their race and gender and then fails, what is to be said? A hugely successful black female vice president is a phrase any one of us would wish to say. Nobody would ever say the opposite. It's racism to talk of people like that. But then again, maybe taking instruction from Ms. Harris in her debate with Joe Biden, as she said to Steve Colbert, maybe words don't mean anything or have any consequence. It was a debate. We're all too smart to believe that, though, aren't we? After all, when used by the wrong perspective, words can actually constitute violence, can't they? That's what we're told. Right now, I'm a little more worried about the violence from Russia, China, and flowing into the U.S. via our borders. Those we are told not to pay attention to either, just like words in a debate. It was a debate. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. There's our old friend Smitty in Scottsdale. How are things in Scottsdale, Smitty? It's another beautiful day in paradise. It really, <laughs> yes. I, I, are you being sarcastic or honest? I can't. I, it could go either I'm way. Being one hundred percent honest. Good. God it bless you. I love it. I love it. Operational optimist. Today. Wonderful. Thank you, sir. Absolutely. So, look, I think that Kamala's failure. Was neither is neither a surprise nor a disappointment to the people who selected her, who selected her for a characteristic which I think you skipped over. Uh, yes, gender and race got her on the short list, and I, I uh, defer to you, Professor. I may be inventing a word here. It was her vacuosity. <laughs> Vacuousness, maybe. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. She has neither. She has no character. She has no brains. She has no skills. She is reliable to say or do whatever they ask her to do, as long as she perceives it as being in her own selfish self-interest to do so. And that's an ideal candidate for the people who are making the selection. You know, you're making an an important point, Smitty, and 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 I'll def- I, I think you have something here because. 
there are two kinds of vice presidents typically, right, in history, those that serve as partners and those that never become a threat to anything you're trying to do or cover up. <laughs> we may be Correct. in that form of the latter, right? We may be in that form of oh. the latter, that they can they think they can isolate her or they are trying to isolate her or they are isolating her while giving her all the, you know, the jobs that no one necessarily would want in a democratic administration solving the border crisis, for example. It's a no-win proposition for her, right? Um, yeah, and but who knows be, what kind uh, of pal- one more th- just one more little thing. Who knows what kind of palace intrigue is going on in the Oval Office and and around the v- president to protect, you know, the public from knowing the full truth. Is she someone is that someone that they could, you know, just keep happy. Do you make Kamala Harris happy by just giving her the number two position in the entire world and say, look, that's enough. Keep your quiet. Right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And she has a staff and a good life. And uh, let's be honest, they're not trying to hide her at all. Yeah. They release her when they need to, to get her out there and she can yuck it up in an, and in front of a, and make a ridiculous, uh, uh, gesture out of herself yeah. uh, to take and to be a distraction for the fact that Joe Biden can't complete a sentence from a teleprompter. Yeah. Yeah. I think, Smitty, I will um, I will uh, I, I will fully agree and embrace your position here, your your theory on this. Um, I think one, two and three, my two and yours being the three, I think those are the tripartite reasons she is the vice president. Would you go along with that? Yes, sir. Uh, see that, and and I'll tell you why why you're right too. I don't think they could have done it with Elizabeth Warren. I don't think she exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. You nailed it. Well, well done, Smitty. Worth the wait. <laughs> God bless you, sir. Have a great weekend. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.